didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my so shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, and maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that's so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, the art of activism. I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. Well, Mrs. Parks, had you planned this? No, I hadn't. Rosa Parks speaking to Sidney Roger on KPFA radio in 1956. It's less than a year after that day on the bus when she helped to ignite the modern civil rights movement. We got the audio courtesy of Pacifica Radio Archives. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police. And I told him, just call the police, which he did. And when they, they came, they placed me under arrest. I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. That bus protest made Rosa Parks one of the most famous activists in America. But there is so much more to her story than what you probably learned in school. I think she was frustrated by everyone focusing on that aspect of her life and making the rest of her life so diminutive. This is H.H. Leonard's author of Rosa Parks' Beyond the Bus. Rosa Parks was in her 80s when she and Leonard's became close friends. By then, Parks had endured enormous hardship because of her famous protest and had still spent her entire adult life working for equality. Here's a woman that was probably five foot one, weighed 100 pounds, and she will be known much longer than any politician because she had the quiet strength to persevere. I think when we all are hurt in life, the ability to stand up again was uh, so powerful within her. I got to watch that. And it's why this book is so important to me to teach other people that we can all become Mrs. Parks. It's our choice to do that. Why do so few of us make that choice? I have never felt called to activism personally. I've never marched in a protest. Never even changed my profile picture on social media in solidarity of something. I worry that taking a public stand on an issue will undermine my credibility as a journalist. I feel badly about this. Why is it okay to leave the hard work of making the world a better place to the likes of Rosa Parks? when in so many ways I have been blessed with more privilege and resources. How can more of us find the motivation to be activists? The work of Rosa Parks, Beyond the Bus, is a good place to start. You just felt that um, you were with a blessed person. When H.H. Leonard's met Rosa Parks for the first time, she reached her hand out to shake my hand and... That was probably the most extraordinary moment in my life up until that point because I could feel everything through her hands. She had creator's hands. You could feel what she was feeling when she touched you. So many an afternoon we'd have tea and simply sit and hold hands. We wouldn't have to talk. Uh, many times when she'd asked me to write something for her, we would hold hands and I would know exactly what I should say. H.H. Leonard's is still in awe that she was able to spend so much time with Rosa Parks during the final decade of the activist's life, especially considering how it all came about. On August 31st, 1994, Leonard's got a call from a stranger at the historic hotel she owned in downtown Washington, D.C. I didn't know who it was. He told me that Mrs. Rosa Parks had been severely beaten in her home. She was in the hospital. They did not know when she would get out, but she refused to go back into her home. The man on the phone was Willis Edwards, president of the NAACP Beverly Hills chapter. He was looking for a safe place for Rosa Parks to recuperate. 
but money was a problem. And he heard we had an artist and heroes in residence program. Could she come to Washington for free if he could find her a, 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 a way to get here for free in an airplane? And I did not know who she was. But it was his tone, it was his compassion, his empathy, whatever it was, I just said the words, yes. And this attack, as far as we know, this attack was not related to her activism. It was a random violent attack on her. It was a very violent attack. Um, and the child teenager that assaulted her did not know who she was. Um, but what was interesting about how she dealt with it was she was, even though she was so badly assaulted that her pacemaker was dislodged, when she entered the hospital, she made sure that everyone signed an NDA so no one would say she was there because she didn't want ch the children of the world to, be, to think that they could be assaulted in their home like she was. She had remembered what it was like being afraid of the Ku Klux Klan and her grandfather sitting up all night in front of a chair with a gun to, to protect his family and how fearful she was. So she, if you look at any of the newspaper reports from them, she entered the emergency room and was uh, sent home. She was fine. And um, the name Rosa Parks meant nothing to you at that moment. Correct. Correct. It was about three years later that she was sitting down in the reception room and someone, one of our tourists pointed to her and said, who is that? And I said, it's Mrs. Rosa Parks. And they said, oh, do you know what she's done? And I said, no. And then they told me. I was humiliated, quite frankly. But she said, when I apologized, she said she, not to be embarrassed, that it was, it was God's way. And that because of it, I, we bonded as friends. And if I had known who she was, she might not have stayed more than a week or two. Instead, Rosa Parks lived off and on at the mansion on O Street in Washington, D.C., up until her death in 2005. She was 81 when she first arrived. And Leonard's... I think I was in my early 40s. And you're a white woman? Yes. Did the two of you have anything in common? <laughs> really? We had... Everything in common, hmm. like absolutely everything in common. When it matters about helping people, um, affecting change in the world, religion, the view of, that there is a supreme being and that it doesn't matter what that supreme being is, is as long as you believe in something bigger than yourself. Everything that matters, we were, we were, we were like mirror images. Um, and I think that's why we bonded so closely. How do you define yourself in, in relationship to her uh, now? I was um, her daughter. I was her friend. I was her companion. I, I um, loved her. And she was more of a mother to me than my own mother, which is extraordinary because I had a great mother. When Mrs. Parks was well enough to start traveling again, H.H. Leonards would often accompany her. She never turned down the opportunity to speak. She would speak before two people. And when I would travel with her, that's when I learned about the things that she had done because other people would ask her questions about civil rights, human rights, women's rights. And I would just sit there and listen and absorb. What consequences did she experience as a result of that protest on the bus? Well, um, she and her husband lost their jobs in... Montgomery. They could not work there. They had death threats constantly. Everyone around them had death threats. There was uh, Martin Luther King's home was bombed. Um, th they were part of all of that um, horrific scene. She and her husband moved to Detroit, hoping to be able to make a new life for themselves. And they couldn't because of their names. Whenever they would apply for a job and wrote their name, it was like, here comes trouble and they couldn't work anywhere. So she finally got a job at the Hampton College as a, 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 she, as a housekeeper mm. and would send home money to her husband and her mother. Um, it was a hard life. In fact, all of her life was hard. Um, but any, any money that she made, she never kept it. She gave it to people less fortunate than she was. And, and after her husband and brother died, everything she did went to the Institute to help other 
children like she was when she was growing up. What involvement did Rosa Parks, Mrs. Parks, have in the civil rights movement going forward in, in, the, in the years after her bus protest? In 1963, when they had the, the big march on Washington and women weren't allowed on the stage, she um, pivoted to women's rights and helped form NOW. The National Organization for Women. Yes. And then in working with NOW, she realized that if you have a group of people that exclude other people, you continue to discriminate. So she moved to human rights, and which was really quite extraordinary. So, for example, in the NAACP, when she was active in the 40s and the 50s and all her life, she always brought people of other colors and religions into the NAACP. Um, she tried to do that in the women's movement. In her church, which she was a deaconess, she would always bring people of other religions into her church. She felt it was important that each learn from each other. And her mission was love is all that matters. If, if love is all that matters, how did Mrs. Parks, what, what, are we, what, would, what was her view on how we should treat people who um, do bad things, do, do unloving things? Is to talk with them, meet them not be fearful of them, have conversations with them. Because people that are, do horrible things um, do it out of fear. And if you dispel that fear, um, they can stop doing those things. Time and again, Leonard says she watched Rosa Parks respond to mistreatment with quiet dignity. It was her birthday, I think it was her 86th birthday, and she always had a tea on her birthday, and her friends would wear white gloves and wonderful church hats, and they were mostly elderly people from all over the country. And on this particular Sunday, the neighbor across the street called the police. They said over 200 times, complaining. She said, people of another color are breaking into the mansion. So we had five police cars out front. They came in. And I had them come and meet Mrs. Parks, and I was really embarrassed, but I didn't have any choice. She was thrilled to meet the police. They were thrilled to meet her. And I, I apologized profusely after um, th that her birthday party was interrupted. And she said, oh, no, it was, it was so nice, but don't worry about your neighbor. The way to deal with them is when they're ready to sell their house, you buy it for me. And that's what gets rid of racism. Economic equality. And here they, when they came to sell their house, they sold it to us. And it became the Rosa Parks safe house. So if you were to summarize Rosa Parks' lessons on activism, what are the keys that we can learn from, that you learned from Rosa Parks? You have to believe in yourself. So that when you believe in yourself and you believe in your mission, you can break down walls and barriers and you can do it with the smile. You can do it with a gentle handshake. You don't have to be aggressive. You can do it with a written word. You can do it with a quiet speech. You don't have to speak before thousands of people to affect change. You have to speak to just one person, one at a time. H.H. H. Leonards is the founder of the O Street Museum and Mansion in Washington, D.C., and author of Rosa Parks Beyond the Bus, Life, Lessons, and Leadership. The quiet, kind activism Leonard's witnessed in Rosa Parks is a real contrast from how we often think change happens, with attention-grabbing protests and heated conflict fueled by viral hashtags. There are still a lot of romantic ideas out there about what social media can do, that, that if you just get enough uh, likes, or if your, your three-word slogan gets shared enough, that that can actually make the change that you want to see. But alone, it can't. In fact, social media may have skewed our understanding of how big changes really happen. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Think about a movement that has felt like it really had a lot of momentum in recent years. 
maybe Me Too or Black Lives Matter or the Arab Spring uprisings. We have these moments where we, everyone turns their eyes towards them and thinks, wow, you know, it's happening. Like, we're going to end structural racism. We're going to end misogynistic aspects of our society. We're going to deal with climate change. And then they kind of streak through and then they're gone. And and we're left with this feeling of, what was that about? This is Gal Beckerman. I'm the senior editor for books at The Atlantic and the author most recently of uh, The Quiet Before. He wrote The Quiet Before to try and understand why so many big change moments these days don't actually result in big change. On the one hand, uh, we have through social media, through digital communication, a chance to do something that activists were never able to do before, which is speak to vast quantities of people very quickly. But you also lose a lot because, you know, the 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 way that a medium like a Twitter or a Facebook works, it sort of leaps over or doesn't give a chance for the, all those other parts of building a, a movement. It's it's way too fast. It's unfocused. It privileges sort of emo- provoking people emotionally uh, as opposed to engaging in sort of deliberation. Mm-hmm. Um, have we been made to feel like we don't need to put the work in? You know, because like attention, something getting attention has taken the place of a deeper, longer process uh, that that is that is hard work <laughs> that is boring in many ways so tire square is a perfect cautionary tale for what I'm what I'm talking about in the book January 2011 in Egypt this video posted by a youtuber named Lucas Jakubika back in 2011 was just one of so many the world watched in real time as Egyptians amassed in Cairo's Tahrir Square, calling for regime change. It was remarkable, says Gal Beckerman. You have a bunch of disgruntled, unhappy, um, urban young people in Egypt who use the new technologies, Facebook mostly, to, to their greatest potential, which is they're able to get those hundreds of thousands of people all to the square, uh, all rallying around the same idea, which is let's bring down Hosni Mubarak, the dictator. Um, and, and it, you know, that wouldn't have ever been possible before. It, it was sort of this like super-powered bullhorn <laughs> that they suddenly had. Now, the here comes the cautionary tale, though, <laughs> because, um, well, it was fantastic for that, immediate purpose of destroying something, right? Of, of destroying something that was clearly um, illegitimate and unjust, which is Mubarak's regime. Um, the next job of that weird coalition that came together in, Co- in Tahrir Square, because it was weird, it was, you had Islamists, you had communists, so you had like a really wide range of people who had never functioned together as a political entity. If they were going to contend for power in Egypt and what was left in the the ruins after Mubarak stepped down, they had to turn themselves into a real political opposition. They had to figure out what their overarching ideology is. If they're for a democratic country, what what shape do their institutions take? You know, how much would religion play a role? How much would Islam play a role? You know, what would be the role of women? There was a lot of issues that they had to get on the same page about. And the problem is they kept turning to Facebook to do it. And what Facebook wanted them to do was to um, whittle things down to a very particular, to very sharp point, to argue with each other, to uh, get emotionally provoked. They just started fighting, you know, and and a lot of those folks are in jail right now. They've been in jail for 10 years, Mm. Um, you know, because when Hosni Mubarak um, lost power, the, the, the forces that had propped him up, you know, it turned out he was just a figurehead. And in some ways, the repression continues to today as a response to that moment, which, um, again, felt really exciting, you know, when you were in it, but then it happened so quickly that it didn't have the chance to have a sustainable quality to it. So Beckerman is not anti-internet or anti-social media, but he says they are just one tool in the activist toolbox. There's this great... Um, sociologist named Zainab Tufekci wrote a book called Twitter and Tear Gas and she sort of diagnoses this problem which she says, you know, social media allows you to skip over a lot of what movements in the past sort of had to do to make 
a mass protest like that happen, right? So, they, you know, you have to work the mimeographs mach- machines and go door to door and spread the word about your protest that's happening on a certain Sunday. There's a lot of work and the work you know, we look at now, and on one on one hand, you can say, "Isn't that highly inefficient?" If you can just send out a tweet and say, "Hey, everybody, come to the square at this time." But what Tufekci says, and what I agree with, and my book is sort of built on this idea in many ways, is that that work, that being in it together and sweating, and you know, and and tirelessly rallying around a cause for a long period of time, is really important because it builds. The, the muscle of a movement, the thing that's going to allow it to persist when things get tough. So share an example for us. Tell us about the Chartists. This is a movement from the 1830s, although it lasted, you know, until the 1860s. And it was uh, the, a movement to try and get the vote. This is in the UK where you know, the, the right to vote was reserved for only a very small percentage of men who were landowners. And at the same time, industrialization has you know, picked up very quickly in the country and the conditions of working people were just horrendous. Um, and they had zero recourse. I mean, no ability to say, maybe there should be a law outlawing the number of hours that one can work or how young you need to be or what the what a factory, what kind of safety conditions should exist in a factory. They literally could not vote. What they did have, uh, they discovered, is a strange loophole in British law which gives any citizen the right to uh, petition the king and parliament. And so what the Chartist movement did kind of brilliantly is it built on that loophole, which had never really been used towards revolutionary ends. Petitions were mostly for you know small sort of arguments about land ownership and stuff. But they, they, what they did is they said, let's get as many uh, working people because there's millions and millions of them, to sign on to a demand uh, f- to be able to vote. And and they did this. They gathered uh, 1.3 million signatures. These were not petitions the way we think of them today, where you click a button you know, on a screen. They had to actually physically create the petition, go door to door, sneak onto factory floors, you know, set up uh, in marketplaces, and then... On top of that, every uh, signature was the result of a very intimate moment of two people talking, one person convincing, the other person sort of listening and trying to decide whether they should sign on. So they finally collected all of these signatures. It was on this enormous parchment that was rolled up. It was about three miles long. <laughs> That's how long it was. <laughs> three miles um, long. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, could they even, yeah. it was like on the back of what, like a cart with yeah, horses? Yeah, trying. it was on the back of a cart. They could, I mean, the, ne- the next petition, which was even, which was even, it was more like three million signatures. They couldn't get it. They had to take out the door frame of parliament to get it, you know, <laughs> actually in there um they brought it in and they were just they were they were laughed out of the place so at one level you could say well what a failure but the amazing thing was that this act this act of putting together the petition created a kind of cohesion it created the chartist movement because otherwise people were just really angry you know they were all over the country there was demands for actual armed insurrection against uh parliament against the king which would have ended miserably, right? So, you know, this was a way to take all of that energy and sort of cohere it um, through the act of getting people to sign the petition. And, you know, it took a while. It took, it took there was another petition of 3 million, then a petition of like 6 million. Um, and eventually, you know, within about 30 years, um, men got the right to vote pretty universally in, in the UK. 30 years? Yeah. So do you think that social media in some ways, it it has warped our modern idea of how change happens? It has somehow convinced us that it's faster and easier and more exciting um, than it actually is and that we're still, that change really does still take 30 years in some cases. I think so. I mean, I think that that really is what I've felt over the last 10, 15 years. But in writing his book, Beckerman also found examples of modern activist groups beginning to realize this. So in Miami, there was a group called the Dream Defenders, who was one of many, many local groups that were involved in Black Lives Matter activism. And 
you know, in in the middle of this first big wave of attention that Black Lives Matter got in, in 2014, 15, 16, uh, they sort of felt overwhelmed by the way social media was dictating uh, a lot of their activism. And they weren't sure that they were actually in touch with what uh, people in their community wanted because... They, they were so kind of swept away by by social media. So they decided to do something pretty unusual and fairly radical for the time, which is they they deleted their apps for a few months. They did what they called a blackout, which uh, in which they literally just got off all the platforms and instead spent time in the communities that they were saying that they represented. And the, one of the first things they found was that people didn't want to get rid of the police, uh, that 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 was not an idea that had much resonance with in the poor communities of color that they were spending time in. Um, and they started going door to door and having conversations with people. And it's not that people liked the police. People had a lot of criticism. They had certain ideas that developed out of those conversations. Like, for example, that in many cases, the police shouldn't be called to an incident, that it should be some kind of social services, some kind of social worker, um, and that money from the city should be funneled more towards social services and away from, from the police department. And these were more complex ideas than just the three-word phrase, abolish the police. Um, the more dramatic example of sort of the effectiveness of doing what they did in Florida is in Minneapolis, this group called Black Visions, uh, that had a similar sort of conversion moment, so to speak, where they realized that they were just being battered by the demands of social media. Beckerman says this group in Minneapolis, Black Visions, switched to communicating in private text groups and turned their focus to local politics. By the summer of 2020, they had managed to get an almost completely new city council elected that was supportive of shifting money away from the police department and into violence prevention programs. Then, George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. When that moment happened, you know, and you can recall our conversation about Tahrir Square, when that moment happened, that moment of high visibility, they knew how to channel that energy into getting that city council to commit to, to completely changing the police. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department to end policing as we know it. And from the outside, that looked like all of these mass protests created this remarkable change, which I think a lot of people assumed. (laughs) I mean, I watched that and I was like, wow, I didn't think people marching in the street could, could fundamentally sway the position of an entire city council. Like, that's amazing. Without knowing the backstory, all of this preparatory work had already been done by Black Visions. Right. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think it would have happened otherwise. I think what you needed was this combination. And this is also when I was talking about understanding the different tools in the toolkit. Right? I mean, you, they wouldn't have been effective if there wasn't the huge protests in the streets. Those needed that needed to happen. But also to have built relationships, you know, those two those two sort of elements of activism needed to go uh, hand in hand. Um, and look, what happened afterwards after that moment is more complicated. It's, it's, it's sort of an intricate bureaucratic thing to explain, but there was another uh, entity in the city that had uh, the ability to sort of veto uh, the council's decision. Um, and so Black Visions and the other groups had to regroup. They decided to get a referendum on, on the ballot to, to achieve the vision that the city council had set out. And, and so here we are back they, to collecting signatures door to door. Exactly. And you go can go back to the Chartist movement. You know, this was another moment where people, they had to go out into the streets and have conversations with people about policing and about safety and about what individuals' visions were of what this could look like. They collected enough signatures to get a referendum on the ballot in November 2021, asking Minneapolis residents to eliminate the city's police department and replace it with a department focused on public health solutions to safety. It went to a vote. It did not pass. But I still think, you know, if you look at the long run of history, the fact that they got 44% of the city's population or voters to agree that this was a good idea and, and such a we have to stop and understand what a radical notion this was to get rid of the, of the police as we know it, uh, is to me a sign that those conversations were advancing um, this radical notion sort of into, um, 
into the bloodstream. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, it became more and more sort of acceptable and understood as one possibility, um, maybe the most extreme possibility, but something that set the goalposts in a way. It, it's, it, it is a process that's slow, uh, that might feel frustrating at times for these activists. But if you talk to them, they understand that this is actually how things get done. And if you look even over the last 10 years, both the attitudes of the people in the city and even the willingness of authorities to, to change their thinking about what community safety looks like has, has evolved in, in incredible ways. So what's the lesson for you in terms of how activists need to be thinking about about success? If it took the Chartists 30 years, and if Black Visions failed to get the referendum passed, and yet you're saying that was at least kind of a success, and it's just going to take more time. I mean, I think, you know, it's it seems maybe obvious, but just patience. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and a sense that uh, over time, if you build up enough uh, solidarity around your cause and keep engaging with the ideas and keep finding new strategies and ways to to change people's minds um, that those are going to be the sorts of movements that are going to be actually sustainable over time and then maybe most importantly find local approachable outlets for making the kind of change that that you want to see in the world because for almost every issue that we can think about there is some kind of local instantiation, local manifestation of, of the problem that, that, that people can actually get their hands dirty and, and, and help deal with, help try to solve um, on their own. And go finally, if I could ask you kind of just a big picture question, thinking about whether or not people who live in a democracy are obligated to be activists. Is it, is it a responsibility to work for change in a society like ours? What do you think? I think it very much is. I think that part of the responsibility of living in a democracy is tending it, is is making sure that um, this what is actually a quite of a kind of a fragile system of government <laughs> in many ways. And I mean, I have two kids who I'm constantly uh, trying to to help instill this with. You know that if there are things you care about, um, you have to not just be sort of sitting in the back seat and hoping that the driver isn't going to crash. You know, but keep your eye constantly on the road as well and see where they're going. And uh, and you know, if it means speaking up, then you need to speak up. Gal Beckerman is senior editor for books at The Atlantic, and his new book is The Quiet Before, On the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideals. Thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, my name is Emma Petty Adams. I live in Omaha, Nebraska. My name is Jennifer Thomas. I live in the greater Boston area. Adams and Thomas are co-executive directors of MWAG, Mormon Women for Ethical Government. MWAG is worth taking a look at for a moment because it began on Facebook, but is built on working for change in ways that are personal, like Rosa Parks, and local and methodical, boring almost, (laughs) the way Beckerman was recommending. Their success is built on contacting elected officials, writing letters to the editor, and hashing out bipartisan positions through group discussion. So it started in January of 2017, um, you know, with a group of founders led by Charlie Mullins Glenn, um, she felt like she could no longer stay silent in the face of distressing polarization and hyperpartisanship and eroding ethics in our government. And so she set up a Facebook group and put into place uh, principles and guidelines that govern us today. She invited a few friends to join her. And then within just a few short weeks, friends had added friends who had added friends. And we, there were thousands of women this is Emma Petty Adams. I personally joined MWAG the day that the uh, Muslim ban came down after the inauguration. That was something I had worked with refugees for the past couple of years. I had deep relationships with them, and I had been a Republican my whole life and felt like that decision did not reflect my values. Um, so I think you know it's a different it's a different reason for every person for why they joined. And is being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints a prerequisite? It is not a requirement. Um, Most of us are members, but we have many who are not. And we just um, ask that 
we just make sure they're comfortable being among us, that we're really clear that we are going to be talking about faith openly and we're going to be looking at it through that lens. Adams says the group now has over 7,000 members in 49 states. We're still working on South Dakota. So if you hear this in South Dakota, we would love for you to join us. And then in addition, we have, uh, I think it's 13 state chapters which are active and vibrant and working within their state. Jennifer, I'd love to hear your story. How did you become involved in MWAG? I was very interested in politics and always had kind of kept my ear to the ground. But um, when the group was founded, I had a friend in the first day or so reach out and ask me to join, and I did. Prior to getting involved with MWAG, would you have considered yourself an activist? I would not. I, I would have considered myself probably, now knowing what it is, a political hobbyist. I always read the news. I felt like I was very much on top of things. And I voted. I always voted. But I I don't think I wrote a letter to um, one of my representatives. In fact, I know I didn't until I was participating in MWEG. I didn't. Um, MWEG led me to actually become involved in my local town government. I'm now a lo- an elected town official, which is something that I might have thought about but hadn't done before. Uh, so I, I, for me personally, it's been fairly transformative, not in terms of me paying attention, but me translating that attention into legitimate action. What percentage, if you had to guess, of those 7,000 members of MWAG today, um, do you think are kind of newcomers like like you were to activism and advocacy? Um, my guess is probably a significant majority are women who are either new to this or are looking for an entry point into what is a very contentious and increasingly in our society problematic sphere. So what that's one of the things we're very proud of. We have two missions as an organization. The first is, you know, this idea that we are advocating for ethical government. But then our second mission that is very dear to our hearts is helping women um, develop skills and competencies so that they themselves can be independent advocates wherever they see the need. Can you tell me a story? Share an example. Yeah, I can. I, I have a lot of examples. Um, I'm, there's there's one in particular I'm thinking of of a woman who has been joined Emwig a while ago and kind of sat and watched for a while. And she is someone who is as a quieter personality, is an introvert. Over time, this woman has written opinion pieces, <laughs> met with legislators, um, helped write um, official statements for MWAG. And we have just watched her gain confidence in speaking in front of others, in leading, in growing. Um, and she is, it is one of the, the probably the, the greatest joys of doing this work is working with women like her. I think she 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 impacted the world before MWAG and I think she'll impact it throughout her life. But the experience of joining MWAG and becoming a part of it has, I think, given her much a bigger platform than she would have had otherwise. Can I add something here? Yes. That something that we have found is incredibly powerful and we wouldn't have guessed it is a, an articulate individual voice. So I think it's easy for us to assume that 4,000 people have to call Senator X before Senator X will move on the issue. And what we found is that is really not the case. If that legislator is in fact even inclined to engage with the issue, Five, 10, 20 articulate, well thought out, moderate voices can actually often outweigh thousands of voices of chaos and anger. And we have had situations where women from MWEG have sent in letters and we have had legislators and their aides call back and respond and say, we can't actually believe, these are so thoughtful and well put together, we actually are not sure we believe that these are real constituents or that they really wrote these. Can we speak with those women? And we can always say absolutely yes. And then we give these women an opportunity to engage one-on-one with legislators or their aides. So that has been very empowering for us and it has been very revealing about the fact that I think strong, competent, peaceful voices have more power than we would have originally assumed. Recently, MWEG's members have worked on reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act and called for revisions to the Electoral Count Act to clarify rules governing presidential election outcomes. 
MWEG's most dramatic move yet came in early 2022 when it joined the League of Women Voters in suing the Utah State Legislature over redistricting maps. This was very new territory for us in that it was, we hadn't done litigation before, but it wasn't in that we had, this was an issue that we cared about, representation. One of our leaders, Wendy Dennehy, had for the past four years before that methodically educated all of us as leaders and members about why this basic level of, of, of uh, political engagement was so important. The vote, making sure districts were properly apportioned, all that sort of stuff. So we could not have taken that huge public step forward without the act of hundreds of women who had laid that foundation. So I think it's a perfect kind of culmination of what we do on kind of the small, mundane, individual level. And then, you know, the big press release in front of the Capitol, everyone's paying attention and writing about it. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because women are doing that mundane, careful, thoughtful, deliberate work. Emma Petty Adams and Jennifer Thomas are co-executive directors of MWEG, Mormon Women for Ethical Government. They tend not to use the word activism when describing what they do, because it conveys a sense of conflict and confrontation, which isn't what MWEG is about. When author and leadership coach Karen Walren sat down to write a book about how to be an activist, she found herself struggling with the term too. I think activism is a really scary word and people are sort of afraid of it, sort of like I was, that it needed to be something dangerous or perilous. But when we expand what activism means, suddenly you can start to see where you might have a place to help make the world better. Would more of us feel motivated to activism if we defined it differently? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Karen Walrand was a lawyer turned leadership coach, popular TEDx speaker and photojournalist with a best-selling book about beauty in diversity when her publisher called with a request. They wanted a book on the intersection of joy and activism. Um, and I was at a time of my life where I was saying yes to pretty much any opportunity that came forth because I um, wanted to live that way. And so I said yes and then hung up the phone and thought, I can't believe I said yes to that. Joy and activism have nothing to do with each other. And <laughs> I'm not an activist. In my mind at the time, an activist was somebody who stood in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square or got set upon by police dogs or got tear gassed or got arrested. And those weren't things that I had ever done. I had done activisty things, like I had certainly marched in a couple pride parades and done the Women's March and done some things like that. And I had traveled to um, different parts of the world with NGOs as a, you know, photojournalist. So, but I had a lot of activist friends. And so I was like, well, I'll just interview people. That's how I'll write this book. I'm very good friends with Brene Brown, who I consider an activist. Um, she, she she does a lot on in the arenas of shame and vulnerability and courage. She's a professor here in Texas where I live in Houston. Um, but she also does a lot of stuff for LGBTQ rights and um, anti-racism and uh, anti-discrimination. Another friend of mine is Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement. And clearly I thought of her as an activist. And then I started thinking, well, these aren't women that stand in front of tanks in Tiananmen Square. And they're not people who, you know, get tear gassed. They, like, but I could call them an activist. Why couldn't I call myself an activist? She needed a definition of activism that wasn't all about conflict or drudgery. And while she was at it, why not a different word entirely? So Walren settled on Lightmaker. The title of her book is The Lightmaker's Manifesto, How to Work for Change Without Losing Your Joy. It's somebody who takes their skills and their experience and does intentional, purposeful action with the hope of making the world brighter for others. And I think a lightmaker in particular does it in a way that, yes, brings joy to themselves and makes the world a brighter place. And so what would be some of the things that you think are activism that other people might not think? Um, well, I mean, it can be all kinds of things. So I think certainly voting 
can be activism, mm. but also calling your representative can be activism. It can be writing cards to get the vote out, to sign people, voters up, right? That's activism. So let's, that's, that's sort of easy, an entry point thing. But I think also local fundraisers for your PTA is activism. I think um, if you're a, if you're a singer, having a little concert for people where you charge people because t- for a certain cause, that can be activism. Um, uh, there's a group of women at the church I attend who knit baby blankets for uh, people who are expecting babies in the in the congregation. That's activism, right? Like I think anything that you do where I'm going to try to make the world better. I'm going to try to make my community better. I'm going to try to make the people around me feel better and brighter. That's activism. One of the biggest areas of feedback that I've gotten about the book since it came out, including from my own father, is, oh my gosh, I think I was an activist and I didn't even know it. Why did you settle on the light metaphor? Yeah. So light metaphors have been something that I've played with for a long time, even before writing the book. I'm a photographer and... um, the word photography literally means drawing with light. And when we talk about people, often we use things like that are light related metaphors, right? We talk about how people's eyes sparkle, you know, that they're lit from within. It can mean gratitude, right? We see the light in every day. It can mean optimism. And it just seemed to work particularly well when we were talking about activism because we're talking about creating a lighter, brighter world. Now, if you're unsure what light making could look like for you, Walrin suggests making a list of what you've got to work with. What is it that you have that you love to do? What are the skills? Are you a singer? Are you really good at sewing? Are you really good at cooking? Are you really good at, at hosting events and parties? Are you really good at um, at books? Are you really good at podcasting? Like whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. the thing, getting really clear at the things that you love to do. You're not thinking at this point about how you can put those things to work for activism or light making. You're just identifying the stuff that lights you up, so to speak. Then you need to find your spark. What is the thing that's making you angry? What's the thing that's like nagging at you and going, that can't be right. Like this can't be right. Somebody ought to do something about this, right? And then you start getting the plan. How am I going to use those gifts and those skills that I love in order to activate around this cause that I want to? What are the ways I can do that? Do you think literally literally any skill can be used as a spark? I mean, some things that I like to do, I guess I... I guess I just wonder if I'm good enough at those things. I mean, I like them, but am I good? I, I, I like to knit, but I definitely am not going to be able to sell anything that I make, right? So how can that really... Well, like if you... But it could be. Like if you love to knit and knitting is something that you really are is fun for you. It brings you peace. It brings you joy, even if all you're doing is a garter stitch. So then you think, you know what? Um, I like knitting and I only like to knit square things. I can make baby blankets. Like those are easy because I can just do a square garter stitch. So what if I went to the women's shelter or maybe there's a neonatal unit at the county hospital and then I just start a knitting circle with my friends. Mm -hmm. And all we do is we just get together once a week for tea or whatever and we catch up with our friends, but the whole purpose is to create this bank of blankets that are, we're going to donate to such and such. Mm. You don't have to be good at it, right? Mm. But it's fun. You're doing something to make the world brighter. So, yeah, I actually do think that the skills and joy, there is something that everybody has that can be done in service. I think we're wired that way. What if in my enthusiasm to take the things I love and marry them with the things I'm passionate about, I end up unintentionally um, undermining the work of others (laughs) or or harming in some way or like (laughs) stepping on toes or like, you know, I mean, doing it wrong, basically. Yeah. So um, Tarana, who is just fantastic, um, Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement, she says this a lot. Like, and she's been in the activism space for years and years. She says that she has always approached activism as a student, right? And has... um, uh, th- she says in every space that she's ever been in, there's always been people who have been in the space longer and have done it better. And so her first thing is, I go in and learn. These are the skills I have and I ha- I offer them to you. I'll let you guide me in the best ways that I can use them. So, you know, whatever it is that you're planning on doing, it's always a great idea to 
find the people who have been doing it well mm. already and learn as much as you can from them. So that's one point. Now, inevitably you're going to screw up. And what you do, of course, is you take accountability for it, right? Like, I mean, it can feel very ego bruising when you screw up. Um, when people call you out and your intent was never to hurt, but somebody says, hey, you you really, what you said here was hurtful or what you said here was completely wrong or misguided or miseducated. Um, you can immediately feel like, what? Like, I, I'm trying to help. Like, how dare you um, call me out on this when all I've been trying to do was help all along. And that's, a, I mean, I think that's natural to feel that way. Yeah. Um, but the what you do is, of course, you take accountability and say, okay, I screwed up and I'm listening and I'm willing to learn harder and better and I'm going to take it and do something with it. Do you think this is something that all of us You've made the point that we we can all be light makers and we probably all are or have been in at least some small way. We've probably done it without realizing it. Um, so the call here is to focus it and do it more intentionally. Do you think that that is something we must do? I think, yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. But I think not must as in... Um, we have a responsibility to do it, although that's, there's an argument for that. But I think we're wired to do it. We are wired for interdependence and interconnection. And there are studies out there that says the more purpose and meaning we have in our life, it's actually better for our health. But I also think that there's a sort of spiritual grandeur. We're connected to something bigger. We're connected to each other that impels us to do this. If we And, and in I think for most people who actually engage in some sort of activism, as, as, define, as I define it, right, it's sort of helping make the world brighter, they find that they could never do anything, they couldn't do otherwise, they couldn't resist it. Um, I, you know, I mentioned that so many people have come back to me and said, I never really considered what I do activism. It's just what I do. It's just what I, 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 I have to do something. There's a problem. I have to fix it. That is a sentiment I kept hearing over and over and over again. So yeah, I actually think that we are wired for it um, over and above whether or not we have a responsibility to do it. And I do also believe we have a responsibility, but it's even bigger than that, I think. Karen Walrand is author of The Lightmaker's Manifesto. How to Work for Change Without Losing Your Joy. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me and Bailey Johnson with help from Elizabeth Miller and James Hoops. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. And if you haven't already, would you take a moment to leave a rating or give us a review on the podcast app where you are listening to Top of Mind? That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking deeply. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Hold up. 